Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. All right, well, we'll, I think we'll just kick off. Well, look, 24 albums, uh, countless collaborations, 38 years on the on the killing floors of show business. But, but surely this uh, was just <laughs> the, the, the highlight. Killing the killing surely this is the highlight of The Word podcast. With yes. Me yeah, it finally yeah. arrived. Locked yeah. in an airless room with Hepworth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is what it's all been leading up to. It has. Well, happy days. Well, it's lovely to see you, and this is a Good fantastic book. And, Thank uh, you. The, the question we normally ask in Word in Your Ear podcast is is what was the music um, that you can remember listening to in the house where you grew up? Because this is going to be a key part of this conversation. Oh, well, that, that, that's, that's what I spent a lot. That's why the book is as long as it is, because I, I, I sort of had to write about all those memories. I mean, in a nutshell, um, I'd say that, you know, your parents, I, I don't know, no, somebody's parents, certainly a few of my friends' parents, um, we're knocking on the bedroom door saying, turn that bloody music down. And my dad's in the front room learning the same music to sing on the radio. And that sort of changes everything a little <laughs> bit because that's what he did. He sang on the radio and, and, and in the dance hall. And a lot of that was because of the, the years we're talking about uh, involved learning hip parade tunes, however inappropriate they were for somebody singing in front of a Glenn Miller-style dance band, you know. Uh, There's a the lovely bit was. where he, he has to do, in one week, he has to do My Boomerang Won't Come Back. Oh, he did, uh, yeah, and also I mean, see uh, Emily play uh, by yeah, Pink Floyd. Well, not the same week, obviously. but My shelf of singles as a boy was obviously the ones I bought with my pocket money, the same as any kid, but, but I had all these extra records because my dad brought home stacks of them every week in the early 60s particularly and uh, mid-60s. Um, they were. They, I mean, I had no control over what he was given. Once I realized that was a source of free records, I'd keep my fingers crossed that he got detailed to sing my favorite hit from the charts. But, I mean, it, sometimes it would be my boomerang won't come back. And I have that single. So I know he sang it. <laughs> no <you> shame. <laughs> no, no, shame. no shame. I mean, at the time, they just had to sing what was what was popular because that was the filter at the BBC. Was uh, you know, you, If you look at the s- schedules from the... I've got a clip in from when my dad was first on the radio that my grandmother must have clipped out of the paper, you know. And uh, you look down the schedule of the day and it begins with the, with, the, with the shipping forecast and then the news and then somebody playing 
popular tunes on the cinema organ, then yeah. a, a Palm Court Orchestra, then Mrs. Dale's Diary, and then, yeah. you know, Joe Loss and my dad's first performance, and so it goes on. And it's they hardly, hard, ever hardly, any, any, hardly any records. Uh, so, so, of course, then... The bands were also queuing up to make guest appearances. So when I was a kid, I was just not very far from where we are here. In fact, I just drove by it. The Playhouse Theatre under the arches at, um, at Charing Cross was where the Joe Lost Pop Show <clears throat> was uh, was broadcast uh, on Friday afternoons at Friday lunchtime. Whenever I was off school, I'd go with my dad and watch the whole rehearsal. And of course, as a kid, it was one, it what was seeing you... your dad at work and two, it was yeah. kind of magical because there's a chance that the Hollies or somebody would walk in carrying their equipment, a bunch of, you know, scruffily dressed lads that probably slept in the van on the drive down from Huddersfield. And then yeah. suddenly you're what seeing you them come in. Because there's a lovely bit where you're, I think, 1979 and the attractions are playing the Hammersmith Palais and you talk about the, the, uh, the, 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 the scent of spilt beer and stale tobacco. And, the, and of course, the, the, you know, the, 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 the tears of jilted girls. Well, that, that was, that was the little, slightly romantic bit that no, I added. it's beautiful. Yeah. But it is sort of true because when I went there as a, I'd been there as a kid. That's right. You'd watch your father there. My mum used to get me out of the house by sending me with my dad to work on Saturday afternoons because the Palo used to be opened up for just maybe 30 patrons on it, you know, and and I think there were two bands because they came around on a revolving... Uh, bandstand. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> the, the Ray McVeigh uh, <laughs> set was in there. Uh, um, uh, and then, anyway, Joe Loss would revolve into view playing in, in the mood, and then I'd wait all afternoon to hear my dad maybe sing one song because they were mostly doing the strict tempo stuff. For The, for the main reason why I'd opened up were the, were the competition dancers would practice and knock everybody out of the way, and there'd be a few little old ladies dancing together and a, a mum teaching her daughter to dance. So it was, when I th- remember it now, it's, it's kind of a sweet scene, but there'd also be really, really strange, only in England things like the English, in, you know, tiddlywinks champions would come and yeah. demonstrate in the middle of the dance floor, you know. <laughs> They'd stop everything and play a fanfare. Now we have the English. You know, and Joe Loss was great. He, he would always, my favourite announcement is he would say, we will now continue with our next number. Oh, that's really, well, that's I've used it a few times when I've been stuck to something. I've <laughs> not a clue what's going up there. Yeah, but I now continue with our next number as if we might we might continue with our next but three yeah. number. You know? <laughs> so you, it's one of the important points in the book, isn't it? You kind of grew up with music as a trade rather than, Definitely, yeah, rather yeah. than you didn't have the normal stars in your eyes that, that most people no, have when they, when no, they join because it was kind of mundane, really. You know, when, you watch, when you're watching Dad going to work and it's a bunch of what to me were middle-aged men, reading the paper and I think still smoking, you know, almost certainly the scene. I remember it as if it were that it may not be, but uh, they they were all just chatting away. And then some, you know, Joe would come on and bang it. And then the music would happen. And the same with the bands. When I saw the bands rehearse, they were just in their civvies, you know. Then they'd go backstage just because they were on the radio. Put a suit on. Didn't mean that they wouldn't get dressed. Gino Washington was on the show once. He, he changed his suit for every number. Every he came out in a different coloured suit. <laughs> and no one could and I learned, I tell you, I, 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 I file this away. I mean, I file stuff away. That's the nature of my mind. And years, years later, in 1983, I was on a radio show in Paris with Johnny Halliday. And they said, you have to... You have a live mic so you can talk to Johnny and then we want you to walk down that catwalk that goes between the two banks of audience and lip sync to your song. 
I said, on the radio? What is the point of that? <laughs> That's absolutely And so I lip-synced on the radio because they wanted the sound of the crowd mostly going, Jean-Ni, 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 trying to sing every day I write the book, you know, so, oh, or God. trying to pretend to sing it. Well, did it strike you that the, 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 there was an irony? I don't know what it, it did strike you at the time. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the success of the Beatles was the group that really inspired yeah. you. It sort of, you know, sounded the death knell for your father's own career to some extent, wasn't it? It, 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 actually, it actually didn't in a way because I think... Um, because it it would have done if it had been the late sixties when radio became yeah. you know the, the model it is now or the model it was certainly for most of my professional career. But because of the way it was set up, the, the Beatles publishers were sending their songs; they were submitting their songs to be covered. And that's one of the magical things as a fan and being a Beatles fan club member. My dad would get given these acetate dubs on the uh, Dick James uh, label. They'd come directly from the publisher of songs from the Beatles albums that they were trying to get a few extra pennies of publishing royalties. That's the way it worked. They were working on the model of promote the song, promote the song, not promote the artist necessarily. The, The labels on these things, they were pre-printed labels that said Dick James Music and then there was a space for the sub-publisher which in this case was Northern Songs and that was just typed in carelessly yeah. and it didn't even say The Beatles it just said Beatles and then, yeah. but these were songs like Girl and Michelle so those were songs on Rubber Soul yeah. I mean as late as that they were still you know doing what publishers then did which was promote and you know my mother had worked in the record shops when the, the, the chart was actually one of sheet music so you know and in this also, nothing about that in the 60s was do cover records that predated the Top of the Pops compilations of sound-alike yeah. recordings. And they were recordings done in 9 in the morning. You know, this the, the sort of time we were recording this, sort of 7 a.m., when they could get cheap <laughs> studio time. And they would do note-for-note knockoffs of current hits, yeah. put four of them on an EP and sell them in the petrol station. Yes. And it was an Australian entrepreneur that came up with this notion that the song was actually the thing that people were attracted to. I can remember. If it sounded sufficiently like the original record, that, that people would buy it because it was good value for money. So my dad would appear under various aliases, sometimes four, four artists on the same EP that would all be him doing various takeoffs of these other songs. Yeah. Frank Bacon and the Baconeers, Hal Prince and the Layabouts. <laughs> the Baconeers. Yeah. The Foresters doing their note-for-note knockoff of Peter, Paul and Mary's take on Blowing in the Wind. You know? there's, a, there's a little bit where you start your kind of professional career, as it were, and uh, which I wanted more on, actually, and you're talking about playing in, I think it's in Widness with a friend called Ian. Was that No, right? Alan. Alan. Alan was Alan. Was Alan. Alan who, the I one who came on and said, uh, great to be back. Yeah, well, he was Even great, he, and... and you know, he's still playing in Austin, and we, we reformed our group the other night at a book event in, in Austin, Texas. Oh, brilliant. After 43 years, we played the song I, I wrote when I was 17, and I brought him out from behind a curtain. You'd think it announced the Beatles were reforming, the way that people reacted. They never heard us originally. I don't know why they were so excited. But so I think it was just the emotion of it. You know, they could see He's it a professional there. musician yeah, still. Remained, yeah, when we haven't been in touch for years and years. And of all the things he kept, he kept... Um, a school book, it actually was, with every gig we did, right. every set list, and how much money. What were you called again? We were called Rusty. Rusty. And we were doing mostly sort of Crosby, Stills and Nash and Birds and, yeah. you know, actually basement tape songs. We, we used to play, we didn't call them that then. There were things like You Ain't Going Nowhere yeah. and Tears of Rage and, and I know, Wooden Ships. and I mean, anything. Oh, yeah, down by, And everybody knows this is Nowhere. And just what we liked, you know, we wrote a few of our own songs which were completely purple 17 year old poetry you know would be 
But, well, you know, we really meant titles. it. Yeah. Do you remember the titles? Oh, well, I don't know. There were all sorts of titles. But we both wrote... One of them turned into the, one of them turned into the song Ghost Train that I recorded in 1980. Oh, yeah. Uh, because that was r- sort of written from going to the clubs with my dad and carrying his trumpet and his equipment. So I sort of had this romantic, slightly cynical idea of show business then and thought it was above it all. But we actually sent demos out. We sent demos out, you know, very... Of course, I knew nothing about tape recorders, so I never cleaned the heads. So when we played the (laughs) the demo tape, it sounded like a a Charlie Patton record from 1937. (laughs) 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 Have you you kept all this stuff? I kept the the Beatles acetates. I kept... Alan kept his notebook, and he was good enough to give it to me. I put a few of the... a few of the pages from it in in the what do they call it the electric book we couldn't do a steam book the electric book of this uh, uh, oh, right. yeah it has some images in there and you know there's there's one where we played we were played with the natural acoustic band which sure, was oh, a yes. big thrill remember them yeah and uh, we played with them at Quarry Bank School which was yes. of course oh, again fantastic. it was a big thrill it was like we're playing John Lennon School well it'd be a rough ass sort of school and when we get there it's a nice middle class college with trees around it is now. <laughs> well no it was then actually, maybe it was then I think actually, it was actually yeah whereas I I was going to this, you know, Victorian monstrosity in the centre of town, which was much less. So you, you were definitely at that time. You, you were kind of on the folk circuit, weren't you? Was, yeah. Is kind I of. I used to get thrown out of folk clubs for trying to play my own songs. Right. You, you probably remember that, so much like traditional and modern jazz, my dad got punched by a local trad jazz player for trying to borrow his trumpet. <laughs> I wanted to just. I used to about get thrown out the door for <clears throat> trying yeah. to sing my own. Bedroom ditties in a place where you were supposed to be singing a wailing song, you know. But did that did that help you? That was that Made great discipline. Made me angry, Dave. <laughs> did it? No, I mean, I mean, I just, you know, no, we start, to, actually, truthfully, we started up our own clubs. That's the only way we could get the music that we wanted to play. Um, <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me. Funnily enough, my mum and dad had done the same thing in you know like forty nine fifty in Liverpool. Me and Alan and a few other pals. We had one, one, one fellow that used to run club nights wherever he could get a venue, you know. And I, I, the whole door would be five pounds, which had to be divided up yeah. between, between everybody that played and probably some money you had to give the venue. So nobody was making any money, but we were learning how to play. That right. was all it was about, really. What <laughs> was it that excited you about these various groups that you, you – Joni Mitchell, you write about a lot, and it's, the Grateful Dead, and the Peter Green. You wonder if you say he well, was Peter among Green us, but Pete, not above us. Yeah, I think he – I think I just said he had a – that was the way the voice strikes me now when I listen to it. But, I mean – it's a funny song to be your first song as Man of the World because it's yeah. very complicated. But for whatever reason, I, I, was, I was moved to learn that one in a way that I hadn't been moved to learn much simpler songs. I just loved listening to them and I never really picked them apart. I, somebody had written out these chord symbols and I struggled and struggled and struggled for weeks and weeks until I could play it fluently. Of course, yeah. by the time I'd mastered it, I'd mastered so many chords. I, I had half the chords that were in my, you know, my first twenty Absolutely. songs. You know, it was then I realised all these other songs were That's actually easy. It's a funny way around to have done yeah, it, it, but, it but it was just the that one song just meant so much to me. I had to learn it. I don't know why. I get the I get the feeling that that you were really into that in the early seventies. You're really into that kind of Warner Brothers. You know, Raikou, uh, Randy Newman, Well, I think Bonnie there were two Wright. choices. You know, don't you don't you think there were two? There was two ways to go. I, I went to went to my my parents had separated in the early sixties, but my you know, my dad was always around, so I never re, you know. But in seventy, my mother and I actually moved to Liverpool, and um, when I went to school there for my last two years, it, I, it was a very different culture. You know, I went to school in Hounslow. Everybody listened to Motown, Chartbusters, and Rocksteady. 
yeah. you know, those Trojan compilations. Yeah. That's what we had at parties. And I, I might have been listening to David Ackles and Joni Mitchell in my bedroom, but I never said it that to anybody. When I went to Liverpool, you're trying to fit in, and I'm like, I can't, get, I, I can't listen to Deep Purple and Pink Floyd. It's awful. You know, I just say everybody liked that. That's Psychedelic true. music's always been big in Liverpool. People liked all this long, the whole yeah. sides of a you know, piece over a whole side. I'm not going to listen to that. And um, eventually persuaded a few of my mates to listen to Joni Mitchell. And, you know, we'd, we'd, go to, we'd go on the train to Manchester early in the morning and buy tickets because a lot of the big tours n- n- didn't come to Liverpool. They would come only as n- 40 miles away, you know. So, yeah, I, what, that's what I was listening to. And, it was just like, and, and then playing the guitar, those songs seemed more achievable somehow. It, the thing it did do was trick me into thinking that singing intimately would naturally still people in the room because that's what I'd seen all these people I yeah. admired. They commanded a room with, with a confidential style. Yeah. But, it was, of course, they'd won the right to do it that way. They were you know, famous. It was a, Absolutely. Yeah, they were famous, and that part of it sort of escaped my notice. So yeah. when I started, Who is this guy? I started yeah. to sing these the same <laughs> intimate way uh, Jackson Brown or somebody did, you know, because well, it didn't work. It took me until, you like, about... the yeah, room. Yeah. It took me to about 75 to realise I had to... And my natural voice was louder. Right. So I, I, I kind of realised if I sang up, you know, sang out a bit more. Uh, and I suppose the whole experience made everything... And just this coincidence of having this big gap in my teeth made everything sort of sound like I was spitting it out <laughs> anyway. The minute I started to sing loud, people would jump out of their skin because it was like, yeah. what's, he, what's that, you know? I'm intrigued, though, that, sorry, that about the... Uh, you know, when you when you come to prominence, six seventy six, seventy seven, mm. you kind of have to deny all that stuff, don't you? But everybody did. I, I, you know, I mean, look at Joe Strummer. You know, but no Beatles, no Stones, or whatever that. Johnny Rotten was. Johnny Rotten was told by Malcolm McLaren not to talk about Van de Graaff generator and how much he. Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of that. You know, I remember. Start, I remember. Yeah. I don't know whether it was Jake or somebody else saying to me. There's journalists getting on the bus on the stiff tours. They take that George Jones cassette off, you know, because it just yeah. confused people. And it was about getting you. You had two seconds to get your story over. So all those early interviews I did, first couple I was just nervous and surly because I wasn't sure of myself. Then I got drank a mind-bending amount of perno to do one particularly <laughs> famous interview. And was that with Nick Kent? Yeah, yeah. in yeah. the garden at the the Cross Keys. Probably in around the corner from uh, around the corner from Ireland on the day. I was, we did on, our, I was in the garden. We did our debut, and I was. <laughs> yes, rouse, you played that know. show in the. Yeah, we played the show, and yeah. so we got wound up to do the show, yes. and uh, adrenaline rush, you know, and then a ton of perno on an empty stomach. Yeah, and Always you know, Nick uh, was you know much more a rock star than I'll ever be. You know, he had the. <laughs> His tackle hanging out of his trousers, <laughs> he did, he did yeah. and the old bony fingers and everything. He looked like a, a well, remember the New York Dolls or something. But they, and I was just there in my cheap suit that I had, you know, and, uh, that somebody had given me. I didn't even have any clothes. I had one pair of shoes. I mean, it sounds like I lived in a shoebox, but it was true. I had no money at all. Right. There's a brilliant, there's a brilliant I was living off the royalties from the R. White's camel. Yeah. I really was. It saved Christmas. It was so like a Dickensian scene. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. kind of overdid the, the aggression in, those, in that. I didn't yeah. think I was. But you see, my natural disposition is argumentative. I knew that. So it just sounded that way. And, and, it, is, and it is this thing. You can hear it even in here. I can hear it. The air shoots through. And I mean, this sound. And that's part of the, you know, the uh, effect of, of me, the way I sing and the way I sound. So it but would, at the end of the and book, the face doesn't help. No, it's really <laughs> interesting because you're you're looking back, and it's interesting that that you wrote the book 
at the age you are, and had you read it any earlier, you might not be able to make sense of your early self. But you talk a lot about the hot-headed character that you were in nineteen seventy. Yeah, but I'm not trying to deny it because I'm. No, I'm no, proud no, of the no. Songs, I'm not suggesting you know, that. It's I, great. I think, but the songs have, 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 have stuck around, and it is but, amazing. But, but why do you forgotten. think? What made you so hot-headed and aggressive in those interviews? And you know, you talk about your, um, you know, you take the piss out of yourself and talk about your show-off rhymes and quips of those days. But well, that's a little bit you? later on. That's a little bit. That's 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 when I started to think. Well. Make sure you don't get trapped by this, you know. And I, and then I realised that the, actually some of the things that are in the songs were being they were being bent out of shape by people taking just those those snappy little kind of one liners that I'd thrown out, like what and you making it all example. about that. What, what, kind, well, what of, kind of one liners do you mean? No, the whole revenge and guilt thing. Yeah, yeah. just boiling it all down to that didn't really reflect what was actually being said in the songs. See a picture in a thousand places because she's this year's girl. Yeah. You think you all want little pieces of this year's girl? Forget your fancy manners. Forget your English grammar because you don't really give a damn. It's not saying anything about the girl. It's saying everything about the way we're looking at the girl. I'm not trying to retrospectively change it, but no. it's actually not, and it never was the other way around. No, I understand so, that, but obviously know, you... So, thought- so, of course, if I said emphatically enough, you think I'm saying it at the girl, to, at her expense. I'm saying it at you. I'm saying it at myself. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah. I, but the but the attractions, I mean, you must have been frustrated also by the fact that a lot of the other groups of the charts at the time had nowhere near the level of musical sophistication. And I think that probably, that probably, you know, uh, I don't know, you'd have to take it up with those guys. But, I mean, I couldn't play, uh, you know, really. But, you know, I just played what was needed. The other guys could play, you know. The, you know, it was like an unusual band. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of English bands are like that. Configured in a funny way, yeah. where, where they're not all playing the conventional roles of the band, yes, like the Who, you know, there's yes. a guy soloing in the middle on the yes. drums, like on well, the drums and beat, on the bass, you know? yeah, yeah, and and we were a bit the same. You know, me and Pete were kind of laying it down, and the other guys were off on their own trip, and it was fantastic for as long as that worked. It was a very original sound, and then it stopped working. You know, so. I remember those Sunday evening shows at the Nashville, and my memory is you used to effectively run on stage. Mm-hmm. We were told and to start run. straight away, yeah, and then pretty much run off at the end. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. as if we, we if had thirty-five minutes. We had, we had about forty-five minutes worth of music, and we could get it down to thirty-five on a good <laughs> night. Twenty-five sometimes would be really. <laughs> got to hurry up i think you got a quote in there bruce springsteen asks you at one point in the in the book uh, how do you get this year's model to sound so good i know that my aim is true he was my aim is, sorry i think my he was making darkness and that sounds like it was mixed by somebody with cotton wool stuff yes. in their ears it's a terrible sounding record great songs i'd seen him play them live and they sounded amazing and you said that the reason it was uh, it was just no money. money well we were in a cheap studio and that's what it that was yeah. the, we didn't have any option yeah i mean we couldn't get far enough away from each other or from the sound that we were creating to have any sort of second thoughts so and i didn't actually in retrospect i don't actually think that my is true is really record making it's a picture of people playing in a room but it happens to be me and clover i had good songs and they could really play watching the detectives is the first piece of record making where the sound is sort of part of the story yeah, yeah. as well with all these kind of absolutely pictorial gestures on the instruments you know and then once we got in with the attractions then we did things instinctively in response to the songs, you know. And I think some of the time the guys would, would – I'd give them a riff and they'd syncopate it and that would become – like Chelsea is like that, you know. Pete was playing the drum part from Fire yeah. by Mitch Mitchell. <laughs> I didn't find that out 
until about four years ago, you know. It was a, I mean, he never t- said that at the time. I mean, it was like when I worked <laughs> like with the Roots, it was, it, of that it was, it was, the, you know, it was, yeah, if we got that, we would have been, <laughs> that would have been all over. Been all He's over. copying Mitch Mitchell. Mitch Mitchell. No, uh, and I think it was the Stephen Mandel who's yeah. uh, engineered the, you know, the third producer of Wise Up Ghost, who works with Questlove. He said, you know, Quest loves the way that Pete plays that fire riff. What are you yeah. talking about? You know, and uh, <laughs> it's only when somebody else hears it. It's funny when somebody else hears it. You know, they spot the the quotation. You know, um, I must just ask about. Can I just ask about the the, the, the fact that you know, you're in this extraordinary position of being enormous, enormous fan of people like Burt Bacharach, mm. and Paul McCartney, and, and Bob Dylan, and you finish up working with them, collaborating with them in incredible, unusual, unique, and uh, intimate circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know? What did you learn from from working with those three people? Uh, Extraordinary things happening. Give us some examples of things you, you understood about them or understood about, um, you know, about about being a musician at that level. Well, technical things, uh, I suppose it's... Certainly with uh, Paul McCartney and Burt Bacharach, it was that their strict adherence to the melodic shape, the, the rhythmic... You know, it's uh, they wouldn't cheat at the end of a line, add a, a sort of like, you know, a couple of notes on the end of a line in order to get a good rhyme to work or an, a pick-up note into the bar, if you know what I mean. It was like, and, duh, you yeah. know. They wouldn't do that. They, they Once the melody was set, that's the melody. So you had to use just that amount of space to say what you're going to say, which drives the lyricist crazy because you see all these possibilities of a way to say something, but you just, you, you lack like one one sort of, Tiny beat, yeah. Tiny one, one accent that, that you're not allowed to uh, to uh, to uh, to make use of, and of course, when I write my own lyrics for my own songs, I, I, shape, I cheat shamelessly in that manner. <laughs> yeah, of course. <clears throat> Which means that a lot of my verses are at different proportions and have these funny little asides, which makes them tough to to memorize, but. So I learned that. I mean, I didn't really, th- I didn't really think I was learning anything really what I was doing. I was just trying to write some good songs. There's you know? a lovely bit where you're talking to Bob Dylan and, and uh, Bob Dylan says, uh, so watching the detectives, was that a real cop Such show? a good impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was him. I thought, I, 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 I it's uncanny. It's uncanny. He's normally, in the room. Normally all Mark's <laughs> impressions are George Harrison. George Harrison. The only accent I can do is George yeah. Harrison. But then you said, what did you say? I can't well, I, I, no, I, I didn't. Asking him no, about? I didn't say that out loud. That's what I thought. Because he was obviously teasing me. I would... Imagine, you know, I don't think you're really curious, but the, I mean, I've been, it, I noticed that some people turn up in the book now and again, but I'm not, put, I haven't put them in there to say, look, I am their equivalent. I put them in there because there's different times our paths crossed as I was going along in in my career. And I go, bloody hell, you know, I'm, I, here I am talking to this person whose records I've pondered. And we're having this very bizarre conversation, you know, uh, about, one thing or another, you know. And you were thinking, shouldn't he be? On, I shouldn't. I be asking yeah, him where yeah. are the gates of Eden? Yeah. But Dave, Dave was fa- saying a brilliant. My favourite book, favourite bit in the book, because I'm a you know childhood Beatles fan, mm. like we all are around this table. And it seems to me playing with doing Paul McCartney's songs at the White House seems to me like a dream fulfilment for a nine-year-old Beatles fan. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell people, you know, what that involved. Well, it first of all involved. Going to the White House, which is pretty strange, you've got to get in there with all the security and give your passport and they have to check you out. And and then we've already been told that the room that we're playing in, this is on the occasion of uh, Paul getting the Gershwin Prize for for songwriting, yeah. which is a very prestigious pri- prize given by the Library of Congress. And I think it's only the third or fourth one that they're given. <clears throat> so we're all there and the room is only 
four rows deep. So nearly everybody is somebody, you know. And the front row is on one side is Paul and his uh, then fiance, now his wife Nancy. Um, behind him, uh, Mary and Stella and, and his brother Mike. Um, to the other side, President Obama and, his, and Mrs. Obama and Mrs. Obama Senior, you know. Um, Unbelievable. First lady, <laughs> the mother-in-law. And the bill is, you know, like these things. They, they, it's, they try to show the status by, so the MC is Jerry Seinfeld. You've got, um, <laughs> oh, God. Just it, a, it, it, you know, just and of course, he then, I, I felt sorry for him. He had to come out and, and, and do bits, you know, and he said, you know, I just want to take up some of these, uh, these lyrics with you, Sir Paul, you know. She was just 17. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, I think we do know what you mean. You know, that kind of thing. He was having to do those kind of gags in this kind of, you know. So really it put away our, and Paul was actually great. He sat all through rehearsals and watched everybody rehearse, which at least cut down on how horrifying it would be to do it that night and yeah. know that it was And was, was really filmed, encouraging, he, wasn't he? He was very yeah. encouraging, yeah, because, it, you know, obviously it must have been a big night. He's the center of the attention. And, and the bill was really wild. It was like Herbie Hancock and... Emily Harris and the Jonas Brothers and the Foo Fighters, and Jack White, yeah. uh, Faith Hill, and and I and I I I think I made a good decision. I, I you know we're playing mostly put Stevie Wonder. We're playing um, I, I we're playing with Paul's band. He's back. They're backing most people if they didn't do a solo performance. And and I did Penny Lane and I managed to get one of the Marine band to play the trumpet part because of course they've got one That's they've just got the a trumpet player in a closet and glorious touch that is and yeah. he knows it if you want a piccolo trumpet player we've got one we just yeah. happen to have one here yeah. we have the, it's the president's own marine band yeah. there's a guy a, a, a gentleman called so, um, uh, Ma- Sergeant Matthew Harding I believe his name was a you fantastic must, you part. must have thought this is a dream come true when you did well it, it was sort of, it's a point of I'm, I've never been looking forward to being in uniform myself but my grandfather was a trumpet player right. so I'm I'm in the army, and uh, so it's sort of there was something quite emotional about just the whole idea of a guy who'd been trained in that way coming out and doing this. And of course, it's a very legit part. It has to be played. It's not you're not asking him to play a, a jazz solo. He's, no, he's, he's playing that melody that everybody knows. knows. Yeah, well, it's, it's on YouTube. Time and time again. It's on YouTube. Yeah. Being catch up with him. Yeah. 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 We're going to have to wind up because, in fact, here we are in the in the podcast studio of, of, of Penguin Books, and I believe in about two minutes' time, Richard E. Grant will be yes. bursting down the door, yes, talking to you. So, look, Elvis. It's a fantastic book. It is called uh, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. It's absolutely tremendous. Cheers. And, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. For thank you. Thank you for your Wonderful. time. Thank you. thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Kyler Tsinas. I'm Khaled Sinas, and I have been training a global community of women since 2009. I've created a brand new podcast, Sweat Daily, to help you level up your life and reach your health and well-being goals. From fitness tips to food that fuels you, meditation to motivation, we've got you covered. Sweat Daily, the happiest, healthiest, and most confident version of you awaits. Available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>